Welcome to the IBM Podcast Network. My guest today is Kuntal Joshier, the world's first vegan to scale Everest. This talk is full of grit, determination, dead-defying incidents, veganism, and of course, the mighty Mount Everest. On this episode of the Vishal Gondal Show, let's hear this inspiring story from the man himself. I can assure you, this is going to keep you on the edge of your seat. Welcome to Beneath the Force, the Vishal Gondal Show. In my entrepreneurial journey of over 20 years, I have had the pleasure of knowing, interacting and being friends with some of the most amazing super achievers. Each one of them have achieved success in their field by harnessing their knowledge, passion and wealth. The idea of Beneath the Force is simple. It's to understand what lies beneath the success of these super achievers, their choices, tools, their tactics, their rituals and their habits. And to find a pattern and a set of lessons you can learn from their life. It is said it takes years for one to become an overnight success. I am trying to decode what they did so differently in those years. I have personally learned a lot from them and it has changed my life. I hope it will do the same for you. My guest on the show is Kuntal Joshia, someone whom I have known for several years. Kuntal, a software engineer, stood on top of Mount Everest in May 2016 as the world's first vegan. With no altitude sickness and fit throughout his 60-day climb, Kuntal dispelled all myths. Until Kuntal started his journey to Mount Everest, it was unheard of a vegan climbing mountains. And why not? We've always thought that climbers and especially those climbing 8,000 meter peaks are recommended meat and dairy rich food. Today, Kuntal has shown and inspired the world that mountaineering can be done on a healthy, whole food vegan diet. I had met Kuntal on Everest Base Camp just a few days before he summited Everest and still remember his childlike excitement and warm welcome he gave us at Base Camp. What amazes me is he is a Gujarati living in Ghatkopar, a community and area well known for his business acumen, roadside eating joints and people who live miles away from mountains. So let's find out what lies beneath the force called Kuntal. Welcome Kuntal to the show. Really excited having you here. I am excited as well and thank you for inviting me. So Kuntal, no conversation of Everest can start without what happened with Yuli Steak, the Swiss machine. Right. So what are your thoughts around it? You know, I came to know about Uli Steak back in 2011 when I had just started, you know, climbing and just started going into the mountains. And I came to know about this crazy guy who is not just climbing mountains, but who is running mountains. And my first YouTube video about him was jumping over like a gigantic crevasse. You know, crevasse or pictures of crevasse can send shivers down anyone's spine. And here's a guy who's, you know, standing on one side of a crevasse. And jumping over the whole thing and going on the next side, this is like a real high jump you are making at like, you know, 20,000 feet or something. And I saw him doing this and I was like, wow, this is, you know, crazy guy. And then I started reading a lot more about Uli and the kind of training he does, the kind of work ethic he has and the climb of groundbreaking climbs so, he does. So have you met him when you've been in base camp for several times? Right? I have been to base camp and I have done a lot of climbing in the Himalaya, but unfortunately I have not met Uli in person. I have just, you know, read about him and I follow him on Facebook and that's where I know more about him. But yeah, I mean, 
one of the things was that when I heard about his uh, news of his death, it was like this is a huge loss to the mountain mountaineering community, and not just mountaineering community, but to the entire world because we have lost a guy who is like one of a kind on this entire planet. You look at his focus. You look at his work ethic. I don't think anyone can match it. No endurance athlete on this planet can match what Uli Stake is doing. And when he died up on Everest, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I was just in shock basically for the whole day. So mountaineering is clearly a dangerous sport, right? I mean, so so why do people? Why do you? Why do people like Uli Stake risk their life every day? Imagine waking up. and the only thing that you can think of that is going to bring purpose to your life or you know going to make any sense for you in this life is to go climb mountains and that nothing else makes sense any risk that comes in front of you you are willing to take it you are willing to train for it you are willing to go do whatever it takes to get there and climb those mountains you know for you what eating breathing sleeping or you know gokey is that is what mountain climbing for me is it is not a bigger calling it is actually my life and and you are willing to risk your life every day every time you go on any mountain for that okay that is a good question so here's the thing um, when i am out in the mountains yes i am taking a lot of risk you know an avalanche can come or lot of things can go wrong and i may not come back home but at the same time i am also very risk averse climber in last 8 years i have done enough training i have gotten enough experience that i know when i am on the mountain what i'm doing and what's going you know what's happening so in that way i'm a very risk averse climber if things go south or if you know i f- i have a gut feeling that things are not going to go right then i will you know cancel the expedition but somebody would say if uli stake cannot make it right you know he was like the you know he was the swiss machine how can you de-risk something which is so risky inherently if you compare the statistics of mountain climbing and people dying from accidents or people dying from smoking cigarettes the amount of people dying from mountain climbing is like 0.1% probably Okay, that's a good way of looking at it. I think, and and that's what a lot of people don't take risk because they think the risk is higher. But actually, doing the safe thing is more riskier. Is more riskier. And for me, if I don't go out and climb the mountains, it will be a far bigger risk in life because you know I will have to lead rest of my life as a zombie. So, 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 so let's talk about this, right? I mean, clearly. you have come from a family background and a community you know who doesn't do this right i mean it's um, you were telling me some stats on how many people in your community have actually even gone closer to a mountain right so so what happened how did this change how did somebody who is a software engineer you know gets into this what what happened so first of all i'm a kachi if you know the location of kach kach is like a desert and so my ancestors come from a desert where there are no mountains so i have no genetic inbuilt dna that is going to you know that is that attracted me to the mountains and on top of that you know i was a software engineer i went to the united states i did my uh, you know masters degree there i worked at a startup professionally i went from a software engineer to an engineering manager i moved to india i became the head of india operations of an mnc my entire family was happy with you know how my life was progressing then a trip happened i went to shimla with my wife and this was like a normal vacation and the whole idea behind the vacation was to just go and see some snow dipti my wife had never seen snow in her life and i had like not seen snow for 20 years so we were like both we were excited to see some snow we went in the mid of winter and for the first 6 days we absolutely saw nothing and we were miserable every day because the temperatures were minus 5 minus 6 we were inside the hotel room feeling cold feeling miserable and then on the 7th day a friend called up and said hey why don't you go to this place called narkanda and you are sure to see some snow 
So we drove about 75 kilometers on the Hindustan Tibet Highway to Narkanda and here we are standing at the village looking at all the Himalayan peaks around us all you know completely filled with snow but we also wanted to touch the snow so our driver said you know what this peak we can actually drive to the top of this peak so we started driving to the top of this peak and about half a kilometer into the drive you know there's a lot of snow wow. so you know both of us you know went down and we enjoyed our time played snow angels made snowman did everything and then i don't and, know and, and this was which year this was when this was in february 2009, 2009. so fairly like, recently yeah. i was enjoying my time but something clicked in me and i told dipti look we have enjoyed this far how about you know we just trek a little ahead and see what's going on now i'll tell you at that time i was 110 kgs so there was in no way i could have trekked anything but i said you know let's just have some more fun uh, we trekked for about 15 minutes and we were enjoying we were not so miserable and then i told dipti let's go further and by doing all that further further 15 minutes became 30 an hour a couple of hours 3 hours 4 hours later we were exactly on the top of that peak that we were seeing from below and when i was standing on the top of that peak i knew you know what my calling was imagine it was so quiet i could actually hear every single breath going in and out of my lungs sometimes you know you are in a life where i don't want to call it but you are running the rat race always planning your future or you are always reflecting on your past but in doing all this future past you are constantly missing that you know your life is actually going forward in the so, present so, so what you are saying is literally a holiday to shimla led you to eventually go on top of everest absolutely absolutely if if i had not done that trip i would definitely not be sitting here and talking to you but but there are many people who do these tours it's not like other people don't do this right i mean there are so many people who go to shimla masuri people have seen snow people have gone to mountains but from being there and saying yeah i did this and i'll now you know this is a nice holiday and i can do this every year to saying that i'm going to leave everything and you know decide on going and climbing everest i mean these are two extremes the feeling that i got there so did you decide everest that time or did you decide yeah i will you know take a little bit more of mountaineering what happened what did when i was there for the first time in in my life i had absolute clarity that i wanted to live my life in the present because for the first time you know i was able to let go of the past let go of the future and just enjoy the present moment it got to a point that it was so intense feeling that when i went back home i told myself that i have to keep doing this for the next few weeks i could not actually do anything in life all that was going on in my mind is i had to get back to the mountains so i started living my life through motions just waiting for the next trip for about 2 months i did back to back to back to back trips to the himalayas to a point that i thought this is you know this is it this is my calling you know i have all i don't know what this is it is very intense i enjoy this and i think this is how i want to lead my life everest is not something um, that came like right away but i have to tell you that when i was a teenager in 1997 we had dd metro and on dd metro they had actually shown a documentary called nova everest this was you know on how everest is climbed and how acclimatization works but i had for the first time seen you know the big khumbu ice fall the lord sea face or the hillary step and i had heard about you know hillary and tenzing and of course as all of us living in india we have always heard of tenzing you know for a lot of people superman spider man are their you know heroes or who they look up to when they are children but for me it was you know tenzing norgay mm-hmm. because i always heard about tenzing so even though i had no inclination of climbing mountains or anything always knew tenzing had climbed everest first and when 
all of this, you know, started happening in my life, you know, that I was going to mountains and climbing these mountains. Eventually, Everest came into uh, the picture as well. Eventually, you know, I said, okay, you know, Everest is the top of the world. And uh, I would, you know, like to stand on top of the world. And I would like to, you know, go through the journey to get to the top of the world. So that's how, you know, sort of Everest started. So so many people have this, right? I mean, you, you take a trip, go on a mountain, or if you go backpacking, or uh, if you go sailing, you know, a lot of people do this. And a lot of people do believe that, okay, this is my calling. But the problem is that they have a real life, you know, they have expenses to meet, right. family to run, uh, you know, and this whole thing costs a bomb, right? I mean, right. mountaineering is definitely one of the most expensive sports. Right. So, first of all, how did you, you know, at what point of time you decided that, hey, I can, you know, sustain this? And how did you finally raise money? And in your case, you have not raised money once, you have raised it thrice, right. literally, right? I mean, most people can't even raise money for one attempt. I will share a quote that Arunima Sinha shared with me, or actually told me. Now, in 2013, I had met Arunima Sinha just before my Everest climb, you know, was supposed to happen. You know Arunima Sinha. She's the first. Arunima is amazing, you know, one of the most inspiring people. In fact, there's a movie coming up uh, <laughs> with Farhan Akhtar and uh, I don't know who's playing Arunima in that movie. I don't know either. But like, okay. she's the first female amputee in the entire world yeah, yeah. to climb Everest. She went from literally from dying on a train track to being told that she can never walk in life. To standing on top of the world in 15 months. No, no, she's incredible. So, I was meeting her in uh, November 2013 before my first attempt to climb Everest. And she told me one thing. Kuntal, karna hai, to karna hai, varna bahane hazar. So, when I started out with, you know, when I decided for the first time that I wanted to do Everest. And when I heard Arunima's statement, that is exactly how I felt when the first time I decided to climb Everest. Let me tell you a little bit about my life before Everest. So if I decide that I want to do something, I can stay focused on that goal no matter what. And does not mean that, you know, just pagal ki dara goal ke piche bhago, but make sure that, you know, I can plan, I can train, I can prepare well, well for that goal. Focus is something I always had. And so when I, when Everest dream came into, you know, my life, I said, okay, I have to climb Everest. This is something, you know, that is the biggest goal and the dream of my life and I'm going to do it. And at that point, I had already decided there was no turning back. Everything, including raising finances, becoming, going from a 110 kg person to an 80 kg person, getting the requisite skills, training for five years, building the experience. I knew all of that I had to do. And I was, you know, ready to go through that grind. I was ready to stay patient. And, you know, that's how... So, so why do other people fail in doing this? Because there are people, you know, forget about climbing Everest, right? I have come across people who, you know, even a simple goal that I'm going to read a book or, you know, I'm going to be off social media. Let's right. take a simple thing like this. Right. Or I'm going to quit smoking, you know, right. which is injurious to you. I've seen so many people fail at such simple things. Right. And what you just decided was not a goal. It is a mother of all goals. Right. Right. And you did it and you did it with absolute planning and meticulous execution. When you decide... That you, you know, you have a certain goal in life. One of the things that I've seen, uh, I also met a lot of people who wanted to climb Everest because, you know, I wanted to climb Everest. So I got in touch with a lot of people and several of them have not climbed until now. And I will tell you, one of the things is that they just don't even show up. They just don't even take the first step. You know, when you go from Lukla to the top of Everest, 
that's about million steps. But you have to take those million steps and that start happens by taking the very first step. Exactly. For most people, they are not even able to take the very first step. Okay, I've decided that I want to climb Everest. Let's decide, you know, let's see what the first thing has to be done. Let's climb a mountain. Let's climb a small mountain. Let's do this. Let's do this. It's all these small events that's eventually going to get you to the top. Most people don't even have the courage to take the first step. The second thing that, you know, I have found amongst a lot of these people is constant fear for failure and a constant fear of what others are going to think of them. You know, when I decided that I wanted to climb Everest and I told my family that I want to climb Everest, most of them thought that I was actually joking. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm actually being serious. They, they, they just thought, Fir, you know, or nahi karega. so I'm like, okay, you know, I mean, most people are thinking about me like this. So I'm like, okay. I called my CEO in the United States. I told him, hey, Ron, I would like to quit the job and focus on climbing Everest. He paused for a couple of minutes and he said, Kundal, why don't you think about climbing the moon? So even, you know, he didn't think that I would, you know, make it to the top of Everest. So I come from a Kachi community where we are 75,000 of us in the entire world and no one has ever thought of climbing a mountain. Most of them have a successful business and they run a successful business. So when I was going to quit my job and, you know, climb Everest, several of my relatives also said, Kala dhabba hai tu hamari community pe. <laughs> wow. And I'm like, I'm not even doing anything. I mean, you are already, you know, criticizing me and, you know, trying to pull me down. Lot of people were thinking a lot of things. But look, climbing Everest was my dream. If it was going to happen, it had to happen through me and it had to come from the inside. If I was going to listen to those guys and I was going to quit, regrets for rest of the life would all be mine. They are never going to live my life. And people will always discourage you, right? I mean, there is always a set of people who are the naysayers, who are the disbelievers. But I know one person and, you know, he's the one who introduced us, Soma Shekhar, who's again been a very close friend of mine. And believe me, when he told me that you're going to do climb Everest, I believed him 100% and I believe when I met you the first time, right? I mean, I don't think so. At least I and I'm sure there are a bunch of other people who had no doubt that you're going to succeed in this. So how do you balance this, right? And how do you then go and raise money from these set of people who are, first of all, thinking that you are wasting your time? And, you know, so how do you manage it? As I said, you've managed it thrice and most people fail even once. I think a lot of credit goes to my CEO, Ron, who I, you know, gave a phone call and said, I want to quit. So the very first piece of advice Ron gave me is that don't quit. Don't quit your job. You're going to need a lot of money to climb Everest. And here's my suggestion. What I will tell you is that take a different role with the company, stay with the company, earn a little less money, keep earning money. Mm -hmm. And then you will be able to run your home. You'll be able to run your family. At the same time, you will be able to train for your uh, goal. And you can also, you know, at the same time, go and, you know, search for sponsorship. What I learned from that conversation was, how do you prioritize what's the most important to you? At that point, I had a choice to make climbing Everest or progress in my career. To me, climbing Everest was far more important than anything else in my life. And so I decided that I'm going to become a software engineer again. I'm going to start coding again. I'm going to make far lesser money that I made. But that is going to set me up so that I will earn money. I will keep my family running. I will keep training. And when the time comes to raise funds for Everest, I will, you know, think about it at that point. But at least short term, I knew what I had to do. And I right away did that. I quit from my general manager position of uh, India operations. And I became a software engineer. Four years later, the same CEO who told me to go climb the moon saw my journey, saw my transformational journey, saw me going from a 110 kg guy to an 80 kg guy, giving up everything and training, building all that experience. 
you know, just in a conversation, I said, hey, Ron, what do you think about uh, sponsoring my climb? In a couple of weeks, he sent an email saying, hey, we would like to, you know, do a small sponsorship. Maybe we can, you know, give you a satellite phone or something. And I said, great, you know, this is a great start. And I'm going to continue, you know, raising funds for my first climb. A month later, he called me and said, Kuntal, we would like to sponsor your entire expedition. Here's a guy who was, you know, who didn't think I would make it to the top, said, Kuntal, I think that you will make it to the top. And he gave me all the money to, you know, go make my first attempt. And and then your company is Calfire, right? So yeah, my company is Calfire. It's a Los Angeles-based startup and it's a very small company. For them to spend their entire year's marketing budget on my climb was a very big, you know, sort of a statement. We trust your judgment and that you will make it to the top. That's incredible. I have not heard of this before, right? Where, you know, convincing or getting somebody to believe in you so much that they are willing to write their entire marketing budget on this. This entire, you know, this statement by, you know, Callfire sort of, you know, gave me huge boost of confidence and knew that, you know, someone trusted in me and... uh, Unfortunately, my 2014 climb didn't work out. Yes, but this is Everest. You know, things go wrong. It was that one single piece of advice that my boss gave me. It was a, you know, advice which was to a very specific situation. But what I learned from that was that you have to prioritize well in your life. You have to prioritize what things are important to you. Just select a few and give your 500% to those few. And you also have to, you know, work on your ambitions. You can't be ambitious that, you know, I will climb Everest. I will also be the CEO of the company. I will also be the best husband in the life. I will also be the best son in the life. And I will also do this 50 other things. I will, you know, be a swimmer. I'll be a diver. I'm not that guy. So, so I, I, have, I have another friend of mine. It's interesting what you told me. So he's told me he currently works for a company. He's a CEO of a you know, large company. And he said that he's only a CEO for the large company because he wants to quit and become a wildlife photographer. And I was like, Sorry, I didn't, I didn't get what he meant. He said that, yeah, I'm basically collecting enough money, which I believe is going to happen in the next three or four years. And after that, I'm quitting all of this and becoming a wildlife photographer. So, so you are literally talking about something like this. But the problem is that this CEO could do it. You could do it because you had this job. But what does an average Joe do? You know, what is their, what are their options? So how does an average Joe climb Everest? Is what you're asking. How does he raise money for this? Because, you know, today, you know, climbing Everest is what on an average it will cost you 50 lakhs. Um, on average, it would cost you easily about 40 lakhs minimum because that would also include buying gear. That would also include doing some training on other mountains and then paying for the expedition itself. And that's con- that's assuming that you will only do one attempt. Yeah. If you're going to do multiple attempts... Uh, which could be, which is a reality, then you could, you know, end up spending far more than 40 lakhs. That's exactly right. So how does one, you know, get the resources to do it? For me, I was really lucky the first time that, you know, my company, the company that I've worked for for so long decided that they'll sponsor my climb. So I got lucky. For the second time, I was able to crowdfund my expedition. So I was able to go online and set up a crowdfunding campaign and raise funds. But this was also because a lot of people were connected to me And a lot of people were sort of living their lives vicariously through me. So they knew who I was. They knew what my mission was. They knew how intensely I wanted to climb Everest. And that's why they supported me. And the third year, you know, of course, I said, okay, I have raised sponsorship. I have crowdfunded. Now I really, you know, the the last thing that is remaining is I'm just going to put in my own money. I didn't have the money. So, you know, I took a loan from my brother and I decided to, you know, go all in. But if you ask me how can an average Joe raise funds, I am telling you that Everest is not only a physical journey, 
is not only a mental journey is not only a journey where you're going to become a good mountaineer but if you are serious about climbing everest and uh, you don't have the money then you will also have to work hard on raising funds so it's like almost selling your dream to others you said a very important correct. thing right that people were living their dream through your eyes correct and today the problem is i get so many emails from people that oh you know please fund me and i'm doing this and i'm doing that versus sharing their dream so i think the the bigger thing what you are really trying to say is it's not about a transaction i think in your case you established a relationship with folks right and how did that work so i mean first of all all my cousins all my friends all my well wishers across the world you know they were all following me on social media so social media was one of the things where i was constantly sharing my transformational journey my climbing journey of the mountains and that's where they all connected to me and i think one of the things was in me they saw themselves they saw hey here's a common guy common man from the next door trying to do a completely uncommon thing trying to you know go and climb the biggest mountain of the world that's how they connected to my dream and they all started you know coming on board for example i will share a story that happened last year in 2016 i had you know i was having hard time raising funds but there's this guy who is climbing everest right now he sort of you know wrote to me and said Kuntal I saw your post on Facebook and I saw that you are struggling to raise funds even though I need the money to climb Everest next year I am going to give you some money because I think that will bring me luck next year wow. so you know here's a guy who really is like working hard for 8 years he didn't climb Everest for 8 years because every year he was saving few thousand dollars so that he could come and climb in 2017 and he made a contribution to my climb i think it's important to first connect with your audience it's important to you know just as you mentioned establish those relationships you know hopefully when the time comes you know you will get the support but i think uh, i will be very honest here if you are climbing everest then you have to be very clear in your mind that even if you don't get support from outside you should be willing to do whatever it takes to raise the funds and go climb the mountain so, so it is said right when you want to do something really badly the universe conspires to make it happen right did you see that did you see the universe conspiring to make your journey true i think so i think so very much again i'm going to you know go back to my you know fundraising journey itself first year i was completely sponsored and it was completely out of the blue that i got sponsorship in second year when i was not able to raise funds it was only by chance a friend's friend said hey there's this new crowdfunding platform do you you know want to try and which platform was this this was bit giving uh you know which is today india's one of you know premier cloud crowdfunding platforms a friend's friend put me in touch with the ceo of bitgiving it was in the night i spoke to the ceo of bitgiving and she said you know we really like your story we really like your campaign we really want you to be on board we created the campaign like within hours and the next day i put it on my facebook and 10 days later i had raised 5 lakh rupees from that campaign and you know this is where i think you know universe does conspire So I want you to quickly talk about your three attempts right because not many people know that these three attempts were very eventful there were some really bad things which happened on Everest and you were part of that you were there when it happened right so would love to you know for you to ponder over those and especially those moments right i mean they were like you almost came back from the clutches of death right and again you know not only like going back there but you know raising the funds and convincing your family and all the pressure around this right so tell us that story so in 2014 after getting the sponsorship and after doing all the training and being you know like mentally i was ready i knew i would stand on top of the world 
I, you know, reached the Everest base camp. And for the first week, everything was going fine. Now, let me tell you how Everest is climbed. Everest is climbed in stages. Stage 1 is where you walk to the Everest base camp, which is about 10 days worth of walking. I have done that. We have done that. We met at the base camp. We had a great time. And uh, stage 2 is where you are on the mountain at the base camp and you are letting your body acclimatize to the various altitudes on the mountain. We use a strategy called climb high and sleep low. This strategy helps us build extra red blood cells which can carry oxygen to our body, which is actually the acclimatization process in itself. So this takes about 30 days worth of effort. And after that, you are ready to climb the mountain in one shot from the base camp to the summit in five days. This also depends on once the weather is apt on the mountain to climb this mountain. So it could easily be 65 days that, you know, you would climb this mountain and then finally go back home. So we had just finished the stage one. We were all at the base camp. I still distinctly remember that inside my dining tent, there was this big schedule chart and it said April 18th, rotation one, icefall, 3 a.m. Now, until April 17th evening, my bags had not come and our apprentice guide, Kevin Fairbrother's bags had not come. Now, this bag had my boots, my crampons, my ice axes. If I don't have these things, I couldn't go and do the rotation. And the team didn't want to get separated. That two guys rotate before and, you know, six guys do later, those kinds of things. So our entire team collectively decided that we will do the rotation on April 19th. So I woke up at about seven in the morning and I, you know, walked into the dining tent and Tim Rippel, our expedition leader, was sitting there glued to the radio. And the moment I entered, I was the first guy to enter the tent. He said, bad news coming in from Everest. And I said, what happened? And he said, about nine guys are dead and six are missing in a big avalanche that has happened in the Khumbu Icefall. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Khumbu Icefall itself. Khumbu Icefall is a frozen river of snow and ice, almost about crevasses and filled with crevasses. But imagine, you know, an entire river moving about three feet per day and blocks of snow and ice as big as a full multi-story building crashing any time during the day and changing the entire terrain. That is what the ice wall is. It's one of the most dangerous portions of entire Everest climb. That's where 16 Sherpas had actually died. They're the ice wall doctors. Yeah. It, they, these were not actually the ice wall doctors. No. These were just regular Sherpas who were putting loads up on the mountain. They were not putting the, the ladder. Okay. They were not putting the ladder. They were actually stuck in some traffic jam because there was a broken ladder. And uh, an avalanche unfortunately killed them. And that's what we came to know in the next two or three hours. When I first heard about the news... My knee-jerk reaction was, it's Everest. People die every year on Everest. What's the big deal about it? You know, this was the single biggest accident on Everest in the entire Everest climbing history. But, you know, I was still okay. I was, you know, like, this is my climb. This is my dream. I'm going to go climb this mountain. Later during the day, our Sherpa returned from the mountain. And this is a guy who has climbed Everest already 11 times. He came inside the dining tent. And we had built a very good relationship because he spoke a good Hindi. So both of us had this, you know, camaraderie, which is, you know, not typically you would see in the Western climbers. Mm -hmm. So he came in and he absolutely broke down on my shoulders. I have never seen a Sherpa sob so much ever in my life. And he had only two questions. What would have happened to my wife? What would have happened to my kids? What would have happened to my parents? I was five minutes away from that accident. He was scared. I saw like real scared, you know, like real fear, you know, Sherpa's eyes first time. Like, you know, Sherpas are like supermans and like great climbers. 
but he was like you know this section of the ice fall is not good and when he saw you know those big hanging glaciers from which the avalanche came he said this section is not good at all this year he was scared to go back again in the ice fall and that's when i realized you know the gravity of the situation and over the f- next few days there was a lot of you know debates at the base camp but eventually everyone decided to abandon the expeditions and the expeditions were cancelled maybe some teams went back uh, not happy but a lot of us went back you know learning a thing or two about you know humans and the value of human life when i got back home i told myself i can definitely wait one inconsequential year to go and climb everest again so that's the attitude i came in with and i told myself that one thing i have to do is i have to stay razor sharp focused during the next one year train hard and go back for the next year and my family was also you know okay this is you know he really never never made an attempt so it's okay you know he can go back and make a second attempt so i trained really hard for the one year and i got back on the mountain again now the stage one was very so, so the first year because of the avalanche it couldn't happen it, and now the second year is what you're talking about yes so now i'm talking about 2015 which is when i came back to attempt everest again for the second time stage 1 was very straight forward walk to the base camp we completed it stage 2 uh, about 50% of it was complete we were acclimatized almost over 23000 feet on the mountain and we were ready for our last you know rotation after which we would go and climb everest this was 25th april and it had only been an hour that we had come back from camp 2 we were all you know enjoying our lives we were in the dining tent some of us were eating poha some of us were eating dosa talking about you know photos and uh, stories and so many things generally life was really great at that moment and suddenly my chair started shaking a little bit now i have done my masters from university of southern california which is in los angeles and so i know even what a 3.0 earthquake feels like because in los angeles there are 3.0 3.5 earthquakes happening all the time and you really feel them so when this happened i'm like this is not normal this seems like an earthquake so i told my you know all my co climbers this is an earthquake they were like you have got a big case of altitude sickness and they were all joking about it 5 seconds later the whole dining tent was shaking the entire table was shaking and we knew this was a big earthquake now all of us ran out we were all outside standing on the glacier and uh, we knew no this is an earthquake a 7.9 magnitude earthquake had hit nepal and we were right in middle of this earthquake at the everest base camp you know typically everest base camp in last 75 years there has never been an avalanche that has ever come to everest base camp or has reached everest base camp and done any kind of damage so here we are standing in the middle of the earthquake and we are joking with each other thinking nothing's going to hit us we were actually worried about people at camp 1 because there were 200 people stationed at camp 1 and i was thinking in my mind there are going to be mass you know it's going to be like a graveyard up at camp 1 with people dying left and right with avalanches coming imagine standing on a glacier which is swaying from side to side like really big so here we are in facing this can't imagine what people at camp 1 were facing But anyways the earthquake lasted for about 80 odd seconds most people think that earthquakes last for 10 15 seconds wow 80 seconds this one lasted for about 80 seconds and then there was this eerie calm in the atmosphere and then about 5 seconds later we heard this loud boom almost like a bomb blast i mean i have never heard this kind of a sound in my entire life i right away knew that you know something's coming our way mm-hmm. now we were 
a low cloud had set in at that day on Everest. So we really could not see any peaks. But you know, you know that Everest is on the east. You know, you know, you're facing Everest. Now the sound of that, you know, boom was coming from the side of Everest. So all of us are standing and looking at Everest. And then suddenly something very unusual happened. There were a lot of people standing in front of me who started running towards Everest. So I, I'm thinking, why would someone run towards the danger? If danger is Everest, you would not run towards the danger. That's when our team realized that actually danger is behind us. The moment I turned around, I was faced with the biggest avalanche that I have faced in and, my entire... And there was this YouTube video which went viral and you are in that video. Correct. I will actually talk a little bit about that video. But let me tell you about the avalanche. Imagine seeing from left of the sky to the right of the sky. Anywhere you can see in the sky, the sky is filled with this avalanche. Wow. Coming towards you at an unreal speed, possibly only two seconds away. We just ran and hit behind the tent. We didn't even think that we should go inside the tent. We just hit behind the tent. And then the avalanche hit us. Now, a typical avalanche when it comes and hits people, people get buried under a meter or two meters of snow quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, the snow will turn into concrete very fast because it will freeze. And then people who are buried inside it will not be able to breathe and they will die. That's what I was expecting that would happen to me. But 10 seconds later, my body was only two inches of snow. Seems like I'm going to make it out of, you know, this entire experience as well. Next, what happened is completely that shocked me. I was trying to breathe and I could not breathe in at all. Like I would do and there's just nothing. There's no, no air. Like, you know, someone has sucked the entire air out of the environment. Like someone is taking a plastic bag and putting on my face and like completely trying to kill me. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of, you know, feeling I was getting for the next few seconds until the guy next to me, whose name is Jost, he's a German climber. He saw my struggle and he said that, Kuntal, you can come inside my jacket and breathe. Now, inside his jacket, there were still ambient pockets of air that were there. And so for the next two minutes, I was going inside his jacket and I was breathing from those ambient pockets of air. Wow. And that is so basically how, the avalanche had sucked out the air from the entire base camp. What had actually happened is the mountain opposite of Everest, which is called Pumori, a block the size of a cricket stadium actually got dislodged from the top of that mountain due to the earthquake. When it fell on the ground, it gave rise to a shockwave that ripped the entire base camp apart. It was not the actual avalanche that we were inside. We were inside the shockwave. And so when this shockwave came... It just literally, you know, was filled with, you know, gas or, you know, what I would call aerosol. And that's why we were, you know, not able to breathe. So that's exactly what was going on. A guy in Los Angeles who's a data scientist, he was, you know, also at Everest Base Camp that time, ran some numbers on the size of the ice block and the speed of the ice block. And he said that it was almost as if 2.2 kilotons of TNT was blasted at the base camp. Wow. That kind of a bomb blast, you know, had happened at the base camp, which ripped the base camp apart. 20 people died at the base camp and more than 100 were injured. And every single injury was a trauma injury. It was not an injury where people were not able to breathe. These were in- people who got hit Stone by now, you know, stones and all of that. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember, that was a time when I and Harpreet and our family and a few friends were landing in Kathmandu. We were right. supposed to go to Pokhara for the Annapurna trek. Absolutely. And we were very lucky because we were the only flight which didn't land. So <laughs> the plane got diverted to Lucknow. Luck, right. And uh, otherwise we would have been right in the middle of Pokhara at the at the epicenter of that quake. And Correct. of course Nepal was completely devastated with that. And I don't know if they have still not recovered, I think, parts of Nepal. Completely devastated. I mean, 
later in that day we made a phone call to Kathmandu to our agency and we quickly realized that 10000 people have died in Nepal and more than 5 lakh people living on the you know streets in tents or makeshift shelters someone not even having those things that's again when we when i realized that this is no longer an everest tragedy what happened last year was an everest tragedy this is a nepal tragedy and if we were to go and try climbing the mountain again and if an avalanche happened or if something happened then entire nepal and world's focus would again become everest because you know everest is that kind of thing that diverts world's attention and this would not be a good thing to do when nepal needed all the attention towards you know the those humanity. rural areas yeah. where the maximum damage had happened so this year actually everyone at the base camp collectively decided that we are going to abandon our expedition and we are you know going to go home and you know going back to the avalanche video that went viral yost kabush is the guy who shot the video you know he's a great german climber since the day we met at the base camp for the next 25 days every single day he would say i want to shoot an avalanche and he would take his camera and he would you know always go around with his camera thinking that an avalanche is going to happen wow and when he captured the avalanche he captured the biggest avalanche in entire everest's history and uh, you know he took the video i think he took way too much risk in you know shooting that video because he was still you know facing the avalanche and shooting the video there could have easily been a big block a boulder or a pressure cooker or a tent pole that could have been flying at a speed of 200 kilometers per hour and come and hit him and killed him but you know he took the risk shot the video and yeah. today it is the only authentic footage or you know the big footage of what actually so happened in the base camp i think everybody who's listening can just go to youtube and search for avalanche everest base camp and absolutely and and see the video yes if you just go to youtube and you type in everest avalanche the very first video is yours there's video. got many millions views i was on youtube it has about 24 million views but if you count all the views that have happened on the videos that have been copied and the videos that have been run across the news channels every news channel in the world currently it has about 600 million views yeah. of that video wow no no it is it is insane and i remember seeing a glimpse of you on that video and we were not sure it was you right and so how did people react when they actually found out it was you on the video actually it seems you know everyone on social media was you know st- starting to you know b- discuss among themselves hey i saw kuntal on the video do you think it is kuntal i think the voice is of kuntal i think i see a little beard you know he's kuntal and everyone's discussing and then you know my family look when i was at the base camp after the incident i called my family and i told my family everything's fine nothing's happened please don't believe anything and then of course an hour later indian media reported this as everest base camp devastated everyone killed luckily my family had listened to my voice so they knew that i was alive and then seeing this video two days later and seeing all this devastation i'm like how do i tell them that this is me but then you know i you know there was so much discussion happening i just went online and i said okay i am in the video and <laughs> this is what happened to us let's talk about your third and final attempt where you finally made it to everest after I, so this time you know in 2015 when i came back home that's when you know lot of naysaying happened again 2014 mein gaya 2015 mein bhi gaya i don't think what he has what it takes to you know climb this mountain so the first thing that uh, happened is there is this person who came to me and spoke to me and said you went in 2014 and 16 died you went in 2015 and 20 died i have noticed every time you are going people are dying <laughs> oh god so stop going and people will possibly stop dying and the second these are all true instances because you don't believe in god you are never going to reach the top of the world wow so that's what you know someone else came and told me and of course a lot of general naysaying that uh, ab tere se nahi hone wala hai this is when you know i sort of told myself 
that this is my dream, that this is my passion, this is my baby and I am not giving up on my baby. Come whatever happens, I am going to try one more time. Both times I have never even been able to make an attempt. The second time when even I got high on the mountain, I was very confident. You know, my Sherpa said I did, did great on the mountain. So all my training and everything is, you know, great. I am on the right track. I am going to go climb the mountain one more time. If the third time it doesn't happen for whatever reason, like I twist my ankle or another avalanche comes or whatever happens, I will let Everest and go. Tabka tab dekha jayega. Right, tab dekha jayega. But you know, I will try it So then, you know, again, one another year of staying very focused, eating the right diet, doing the right training and doing all these things for another year. And I got back to the base camp, stage one over. This time stage two was over without any problems. They had found a new route through the icefall, which had made it a little less riskier, but a lot longer and a lot more technical to climb. So we finished all these climbs and now we are on the last stage of the climb. We begin from the base camp, we go to camp one, we go to camp two, we go to camp three and then it's the final last two days. We start from camp three at about six in the morning instead of about two in the morning because there was a lot of wind almost 100 kilometers per hour hitting us. And then at 6 o'clock, the winds died down to about 20-25 kilometers per hour. So we started our climb. The previous night, I actually elected not to sleep on oxygen. The entire team and all the Sherpas were using oxygen and sleeping. And I said, look, I have climbed Manaslu before. I feel confident without oxygen, you know, at 7,500 meters, that's not a problem. So I'll sleep without oxygen. The next morning, I was actually a little tired. I was exhausted. And I started the climb. I have to tell you that... Climbing the Lhotse face, which is one of the toughest sections on Everest, it's a 3000 feet ice wall, was the toughest part of this entire 50 day journey or a 55 day journey. It took me 10 hours to reach the last camp, which is South Coal inside the death zone. Then it was all a waiting game. We reached at about 4 in the evening and uh, at about 5, Mingma walked into our tent, unzipped the door and said, be ready by 7 o'clock, we are leaving to climb Everest. You know, that sort of when it first time hit me that now I am on crux to get to the top. It was only, it was five o'clock. We were only going to get a break for two hours. But at this altitude, just to wear your boots, your crampons, your harness and to get ready is two hours. Because your body is so slow inside the death zone, inside the thin air, that every single thing is a big task. Even we didn't get that break. Like, you know, I slept for half an hour and then just started getting ready. And started hydrating and started getting mentally ready for that final climb. At 8 o'clock, one by one, the entire team started leaving for their final climb. And being the team leader, I and Mingma were going to go at the very end. I was the expedition team leader and Mingma was the Sherpa Sirdar. Everyone left and Mingma said, we have one problem. And I asked Mingma, what happened? And he said, we don't have any water between us. All the water that was boiled was given to every other climber on the team. So I said, Mingma, without water, we are not going to survive. We will eventually end up, you know, getting an accident or dehydrating or even end up dying or something. Let's not take the risk. Let's at least boil half a liter of water and then we can start. So for next 45 minutes, I patiently waited in the cold with my entire body going cold. I was spot jogging and doing whatever I can to, you know, keep myself warm. And Mingma started boiling water. It took him 45 minutes to just make half a liter of cold water. Not even hot water. Just to get a stove started, bring the ice from a good location and convert that ice into water at 8000 meters is a big challenge. 
we got half a liter between two of us and we started walking doing our climb for the next 3 hours because i was the last one to leave the camp most of the climbers were already up there on the mountain i could see like about at least 100 climbers in front of me because i could see their headlamps shining in the night i didn't have any traffic for the next 3 hours i was you know just like awesome you know no one it's like i have the whole mountain to my own and then i saw this headlamp which was you know stationary in front of me and i'm like this seems like a climber who's not climbing up i hope it's not someone from my team so i you know walk 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 and i get to this climber and he's of course a climber from my team he's a very dear friend his name is jitesh jitesh is someone who i had been personally training for last two and a half years for his everest attempt so, so i had met jitesh also when we had met you at the base camp was jitesh there or i remember meeting rafiq you didn't meet jitesh because he had not come oh, you okay. met rafiq okay yeah. you met rafiq and you met the bengali climbers yeah the bengali climbers exactly and three out of them didn't make it right three out of didn't make them didn't make it i will also talk hmm. about them hmm. here i am i you know meet jitesh and uh, he tells me that i have a severe pain in my abdomen i can't even like take a single step i had put in some serious amount of effort in training him and so more than him being upset actually i was upset that he is not climbing so i told him jitesh you can't give up now you are like you know few hundred feet away from the top of everest let's just let's walk for half an hour mm-hmm. and then you can do you know if you can't walk beyond that then you can turn around by that time mingma uh, my uh, mingma tenji my sherpa had already caught up with me jitesh got up and he just walked two steps and he fell down and that's when mingma came and said nothing doing you are absolutely turning around and going home at this point mm-hmm. you are not going up and jitesh actually wanted to hear those words i didn't tell those words to him but mingma said and the moment he said he said i agree with you mingma and he turned around and he went back when he so got it's very important to take that call and go back right because a lot of people don't take that call and then don't make it back absolutely it is i think it was the smartest decision by any team member in my team it is very difficult when you are so close to your goal to actually give up and go home it's like if he would have gone up he would have not gone home here he made that choice that he will go home train harder and come back next year more prepared and try it again and is he doing it this year is he on the mountain he is not on the mountain this year but he is now planning to go the next, next year, year. Okay. so that's how his planning is but he's alive that's the more important point that you know most people don't get it on the mountain yeah. i don't know what decision i would have made was i in his place i think i would have also turned around but i don't know for sure the the good thing was when he got to the base camp he was diagnosed with pus in his kidney that would have been a fatal condition if you would have moved further pus in kidney right pus in kidney through the sonography was found out so luckily he's you know he was good everything was sorted and he's into good training anyway i continued my journey further until about 9:20 in the morning when i was standing only about 10 feet away from standing on the very top of the world mingma my sherpa was you know waiting for uh, me on the very top like he was standing on the top and like just you know taking my pictures and waiting that i'll you know like reach him a lot of people ask me what was going on in your mind i will tell you the very first emotion in my mind was an emotion of intense relief thank god everest is out of my life i had given so much to everest that i didn't think i had more to give to it and uh, it was good you know that it was done one thing ticked <laughs> of you can you can think, yes um i mean i was strong i knew that i would make it to the top and back down alive i was feeling really strong though you know the the emotion of relief gave way to an intense emotion of just overcoming 
by joy or I don't know what happened at that time, but I absolutely broke down on the summit of Everest and the next 10-15 steps that I took, every step I took, I cried louder and louder as if, you know, I was getting something out of my you know mind or of my heart. I mean, just cried and cried until I got to the top and the moment I reached Mingma, he's like, he's like, you know, I'm like, no, 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 all good. It's not, I mean, I'm feeling great. And um, after that, uh, you know, I wanted to do few things when I was on the summit. Uh, we always talk about what we want to do on the summit and those kind of things. For me, uh, there were only two things that I wanted to do on the summit. Uh, a phone call to my family, especially to my dad. This was very important for me to do. And the second thing was, uh, you know, a couple of flags that I was carrying on the mountain and I want to take photos with those flags. I had a satellite phone with me. So I called up home and uh, my wife picked it up and I told my wife that, you know, uh, tell my dad that I have reached the top of the world. And so, you know, she went and told my dad that I'm on top of the world. I only had one minute because there were only $3 on the satellite phone. So a, a mistake I had made that I didn't realize because I wanted to make a longer phone call. I think whatever bit of this craziness that I have or this insanity that I have in me that, you know, led me to climb Everest or is leading me to do these things. I think I get that from my dad because he has always been this guy who, you know, has always gone outside and done things that no one would do. Like I still remember when I was a kid, my dad was farming earthworms. Like which Gujarati do you know has farmed (laughs) earthworms? (laughs) Like, I don't think you would have heard of anyone. So here's, <laughs> you know, here's a crazy guy who's farming earthworms. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's always been this guy who's, you know, hatke and loud adventure. Every weekend he drove to, you know, Lunaula, Panjgini. And I think any, the, the bit that I have this is from him. But unfortunately, he's not, you know, in a state that he can know what I'm doing. Because, you know, he's afflicted by a disease called Lewy body dementia, LBD, mm-hmm. since last 15 years. One of the things that I have been trying to do is also through my journey of climbing Everest is to raise awareness for this crippling disease. Mm -hmm. If you do something big in your life, like if you get a first rank or if you get your first paycheck, you always call your parents, you always call your mom or your dad and say, hey, look, here's my first paycheck. When I was on top of the world, I wanted to call my dad and tell him that I'm on the top. So I did that. And then, of course, I had a vegan flag with me. Now, I am a vegan and, uh, you know, I sort of when I got to the very top of the world, a message that I wanted to send everyone was that a vegan diet is good enough to do anything in the world. Mm-hmm. If I can climb, if a 110 kilo Gujarati can climb Everest on a vegan diet, anyone can do anything on a vegan diet in this world. A message that I wanted to send. So, so, so I'll go on the veganism, but I just want to finish one other thought on this. So you go on top of Everest, you call your family, you call, you know, you do everything. And... Uh, What were the thoughts on your way coming down? Once I did everything, once all those things were finished, the very first thing I did was I told Mingma, like Mingma was constantly on my case. Kuntal, you are spending too much time. The wind has already picked up to almost 40 kilometers per hour and in no time it will go to 100 kilometers per hour. We have to get down now. And I said, Mingma, I spent those five minutes with myself. And I have to tell you that the view from the top is absolutely magical. I mean, what I felt in those five minutes, I don't mind going through this entire grind for next eight years and going to the top again, just for those five minutes. It was that magical. So, of course, you know, I finished. And the next thing was to get back down safely. 
बिकॉज मोस्ट पीपल डोंट नो बट मोस्ट एक्सीडेंट एपन ऑन द वे डाउन यू नो दस अ ग्रेट कोट फ्रॉम वन ऑफ द वर्ल्ड मोस्ट फेमस माउंटेनियर्स इज नेम इज एड बी स्टूर्स ही सेट गेटिंग टू द टॉप इज ऑप्शनल बट मेकिंग इट बैक डाउन इज मैंडेटरी I have changed that quote to say, "Getting to the top is optional, but making back down alive and in one piece is mandatory." Yeah. So that was very clear thought in my mind before climbing Everest. Two things that happen to most climbers when they are climbing, they end up expending all their energy to get to the top, which means that they don't have enough energy left come back. to come back. That's where they get heart attacks and you know issues like you know swelling on their brain or. lungs you know filling up with fluid that's what happens but the second thing is most people when they get to the top they get a bit complacent you know they think ab kya ho sakta hai you know which utarna kitna it's all yeah. done so when they lose a little focus that's when they make mistakes that's when they fall down slip break a bone once you break a bone or twist an ankle at 28900 feet you are as good as dead there's no rescue at 28900 feet Imagine running an ultra marathon and having twisted your ankle. You just come home, I sit yeah. for two weeks, and you'd be done. Yeah. You do this at the top of the world, you are dead. No two ways about it. You are dead. End of story. You have to be very focused when you are going down. So for the next two days, as I made my way down, one more time through the ice fall as well at the very end, I had to be razor sharp focused. Even though I was tired and I had nothing to do, and I think I think what you just talked about Everest, and, and I see this happening not only to you know mountaineers, but even people who are running companies or who are at top of their career, and suddenly they drop off. You know, you know, you see this with many people. I think the big thing is not reaching on the top, but making sure you can sustain and you have the mental and physical strength to recover and to be there. I to think that's there. more important. Absolutely, it is more important. And people, you know, work don't sleep. They put all their efforts, and they burn out. And when they reach the top, they end up with diseases. They have diabetes. Right. They have blood pressure and all kinds of things. So even though they may have become a financial success and had the wealth, but they completely miss out on their family, the the health side, and everything else in their dysfunctional and they lose everything. Right? right, and they end up spending all that finance that they have earned on medical bills. Exactly. You know, not a smart thing to do. Exactly, exactly. So you need to always think of not reaching on the top, but actually, how do you come back and how do you kind of right. be grounded at the same time? At the same time, and and I think it is my focus always has been the entire journey, getting to the top. Believe me, it was very important to get to the top. No two ways about it. I'm not saying getting to the top was secondary. It was very important. But I think the overall journey where I actually transformed myself, like you said, that but getting in the top was optional, but coming back alive in one piece was mandatory. Was very mandatory, indeed. And that's what I think most people are missing, right? They all want to go reach the top anyhow, <laughs> but then they are stuck with all the other problems in life. So yeah, so yeah. here I am back. You know, I I don't have any injuries. All my fingers are intact. I am one piece. And and touch wood, touch wood. I think yes. you know we. we <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Exactly. So, so you know, there is a huge talk around. You know, you've been training for several years, and you've done three attempts, and all of that. And here are suddenly you see people who you know have done nothing, just suddenly decide they want to do Everest, and in their first attempt they're climbing Everest, and now you know you read all these newspaper articles and. That like climbing Everest is becoming very easy, and anybody with money can do it. Uh, today, that's really the impression. How much of that is true? Climbing Everest 
has of course become a lot simpler has less risk compared to what it was possibly about 20 30 years ago today there are amazing ropes available amazing technical gear available you have all the sherpa manpower at your disposal you have all these weather services at your disposal so it's become a lot simpler but look go back to 2014 16 sherpas died go back to 2015 21 people died at the base camp go back to last year seven people died it's 45 people in last 3 years itself everest has killed every year everest kills last year itself there were 40 people on the south side of the mountain with frostbite injuries these are people who have lost their fingers these are people who have lost their toes these are people who never get talked about these are people that most beginners who want to try climbing everest don't know about take for example that you know few days ago the first everest summits happened of this season there were six teenagers from the state of andhra pradesh who made it to the top i don't want to take anything away from them it's a great feat you know kudos to them and congratulations to them but one of the things that i've also been reading about them is that they have not really climbed any serious mountain in their life i don't understand you know why this mad rush to make the everest your first mountain of your life when i was reading a lot more about these climbers one thing that was constantly coming across from their adventure agency is that these every single climber who made it to the top has undergone extreme amounts of training and has gone through a strenuous selection process and after that they have you know been selected to climb everest but you know if you go and talk to any climber who has climbed everest in past the first thing they will tell you is what kind of experience do you have how many 6000 meter mountains have you climbed how many 7000 meter mountains have you climbed how many 8000 meter mountains have you climbed how many snowstorms have you sat through how many avalanches have you seen what is the kind of experience and the kind of you know skill that you build or the gut feeling that you build out of that experience i agree training is a very important part of this thing but i think a combination of training and experience leaves nothing to luck here you are telling me that hey i'm going to train my climber really solid and then i'm if everything goes okay their sherpas are fine the weather is fine there's nothing that happens on the mountain then we'll all make it to the top but if even if one of those things go south a lot of these guys will be in some serious no, and, and trouble what you just said is exactly what i am today seeing with startups right so there are suddenly vcs funding these kids from iit and spending you know giving them millions of dollars in venture capital while they are technically trained and they have a platform and they can code the reality is they don't have any real life business experience which is why they are then forced to write off all these investments versus people who have experience in doing it and of course the best combination is to find training and experience at the same time but in mountaineering experience you know again is subjective right you know you have somebody like uli stark uh, uh, stakes who finally you know perishes on the mountain right so what does experience or training really do first of all uh, you know uli stake is is a different kind of a person all together uli stakes you know uli stake climbs without ropes uli stake climbs without safety and uh, that's why uli has been climbing for almost like i would say 25 years and the kind of climbing that he has been doing 99.99% mountaineers on this planet can't even dream in their wildest dreams of doing what uli stake is doing so he's on a different level altogether but going back to the question of experience i was climbing a mountain in 2012 I was at a 6000 meter camp 
where I was stuck for seven days or a six days in a bad snowstorm. It was so bad that every few hours we had to come out and literally dig our tent out of all that snow. We were not able to climb that mountain. We all had to turn around and all we had to come home. But from this failure, you know, I learned so many things about myself, about, you know, how my body reacted, how my mind was working under these extreme circumstances, how I was working with other teammates of mine, you know, how we were all getting edgy, how we were all getting nervous, how all the dynamics were playing out. You learn so many things from an experience, from a failure, that when you go to the next climb, you are just going to be a better climber. If I want to climb Everest and I have a choice that someone in front of me is either a strongly trained climber or is a strongly trained and a very experienced climber, who would I have on my team? I would of course have a trained and an experienced climber because having this varied experience helps you make decisions. Like let's say, you know, you are looking at the weather, you are looking at the terrain and you are going to say, hey, this terrain really looks like loaded with, you know, avalanche risk. I am going to, you know, say no and go turn around. This kind of mindset or this kind of judgment you can only have from experience. You can't learn in any books or you can't gain from any kind of training that you do. Falling down in a crevasse when you are in a mountaineering course is dramatically different from when you fall in a real crevasse. I have through experience done things like today I can tie my harness even if it's pitch dark. Today I can tie a knot with one hand. Today I can do several of these things. This only comes with experience and doing it in those situations. You know when your mind is completely panicked, your mind is completely chaotic. How are you going to make those decisions? In a mountaineering course, it's easy. It's, you know, you're, just, you're doing it in a simulated environment. So, so a lot of people now have suddenly this dream to go to Everest, right? I mean, Everest Base Camp is now, everybody wants to do to Everest Base Camp. And of course, Everest is the second one. So what is the one piece of advice if somebody asks you that I want to scale Everest? What is the one advice you would give them? To break Everest down into simplest parts, Everest is mainly about two things. It is about your physical fitness and it is about your mental fitness. Physical fitness is 10% and mental fitness is 90%, 90%. of the ball game. So if you are going to win in the mind, you will do well on Everest. You know, there's a good saying by Sir Edmund Hillary that it's not the mountain you conquer, but yourself. And I truly believe when I was on top of Everest, I didn't conquer Everest, but I conquered myself. I conquered my fears. I conquered my inhibitions. So how do you train your mind? Physical activity, we know you exercise, you diet and you do all of that. But that's all 10%. Right. So how do you train for the 90%, which is the mind? So I will break this down into three pieces. First piece is very simple. I actually used my physical fitness regimen to get the mental edge. A typical workout for me would be about climbing 300 floors up and down. 300 floors? Yes. Which building has 300 floors? My building has five floors, which I can, you know, climb multiple times and make it 300 floors. Okay. But the whole thing is once I finish those 300 floors and I'm absolutely knackered to a point where I have no energy left in my body to do anything, I go and do 50 more floors. These 50 floors are not coming from my physical fitness, but these 50 floors are coming from my mental fitness. And that's where I build the mental edge. So this is one thing where I figured out that if I push myself physically, I'm gaining that mental edge. Um, that, that's that's what any every endurance athlete does, right? I mean, th- that is a standard tactic. So the second thing was, I had a lot of fears before climbing Everest. You'll be shocked to hear, but I had a significant fear of heights before I climbed Everest. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yes. 
that's interesting. You are a Mount Everest climber yes. who has a fear of heights. Yes, I, I had. Okay, I had. In in ninth standard, I had gone to a a, a teenage kids camp, a teenage uh, you know outdoors camp, where while rappelling, I actually made a mistake and I was falling down and I was going to die until the guide who was below saw me falling down and he locked me from below. Mm-hmm. Inches below above the ground, I was saved, but that fear stuck in me forever until I decided to climb Everest. Mm-hmm. So when I decided to climb Everest, the first thing I knew is that I had to conquer my fear of heights. And the very first thing I did is I signed up for a mountaineering course at Everest Base Camp. So it's like saying that I want to swim the English Channel, but I I hate water. Yes. Uh, or I'm scared <laughs> of water. Yes, exactly. Just by putting myself in those situations where I was at height, where I was doing crazy things. So basically facing your fears, right? Facing Most people fears. don't want to face their fears and to become mentally strong face your fears if you are afraid of snakes you know go to a snake park if you don't like rats you know start eating rats maybe you know <laughs> <laughs> and and this is a process it will not happen overnight like you know like the first time i went into a mountaineering course and i started rappelling uh, i still remember i was making exactly the same mistake that i was making in 9 standard my guide tim rappel who was seeing me uh, on the top and his words are still ringing in my ears he said kuntal if you don't do what i say you are going to fucking die like he literally shouted this like at the top of his voice these words entered my ears and all that panic and all that chaos that was in my mind you know all that fear that was in my mind sort of calmed down and he said just follow my instructions and you will go down this 200 feet face and i followed what he did wow. i came down for the next 2 years i put myself in this situation over and over and over again and today if you put me on the toughest face on the planet i can repel down that face even in my sleep the vishal gondal show will be right back after this break hi i'm amit verma the host of the weekly podcast the seen and the unseen in my show i examine the seen effects and the unintended consequences of public policy and private action i show how policies meant to help the poor often end up hurting the I've done episodes so far on demonetization, GST, surgical strikes, immigration and MRP and I will continue my forensic assault on the truth in the weeks to come. Catch the show every Monday on the IVM podcast app or any other podcasting app that you prefer or visit seenunseen.in for all the latest updates. So you talked about pushing your beyond the limits. Right. You talked about you're clearly facing your fears correct and doing you know what you are scared to do the most right that gives you mental strength what is the other thing so the third thing that i think really that brought me the mental edge was also being emotionally fit for example i'll you know talk about an expedition that i did in 2013 i did great on the expedition i climbed the first mountain i stood on top of the first mountain but i came down all night long i could only think about my father i could think about my family i could think about my wife and i just wanted to go home and next day i just said i'm going to go home i still had to climb two more mountains on that trip but i said i'm going to go home because you know this is like way beyond something that i can adjust to i came home and you know after a few days i realized that if i have this kind of attitude i will never get to the top of mount everest because on mount everest the going is going to get really really tough it's going to be tremendous amount of misery uh, and you know i have to bear all that 
and I can't, you know, get homesick in, in that time. So one of the things that I did is uh, over the period of last few years, I tried figuring out ways to deal with homesickness. And the only way I was, this is just very specific to me. Other people may have other ways of dealing with this. The way I found out was that I had to emotionally sort of detach from my family completely so that I could focus on my goal. When I say emotionally, I detached from my family. It essentially means that for last three years, I only had sort of a working relationship with my family. Like I was living with them in the same home, but I was really completely detached from them emotionally. We didn't go out on any social functions together. We didn't, uh, you know, go out to movies, no restaurants. Like practically I had no life for those three years with any member of my family or my friends. The only focus of my life was Everest, Everest and Everest. It is like I was the horse with the blinders on whose only target was to climb Everest, be safe and come back down in one piece. But, but isn't that being selfish? I mean, you're, you're living in a family, you know, so it is like they sacrifice more than you. Very much. No two ways about it. And let me also step back and tell you very frankly that mountaineers are very selfish people. The moment I made a decision that I want to climb Everest, that was a selfish decision on its own. I was out there putting myself at so much risk when I know that I have a father who has a who has a you know terminal disease or I had a family you know with no other bread earner you know in the home I was already taking too much risk and I had to take this decision so that I could actually focus and train hard and have that mental edge so that I could mitigate that risk actually it was not a decision that I took on a whim I actually sat down with my family and I discussed this at length and I said look I have to do this they said, we are with you. I still remember in 2015 when I made a phone call home and I told my wife, Dipti, that my expedition is over. I'm coming home. She told me that in 2016, I will walk with you to the base camp and you will climb Everest again. Believe me, family support was a huge thing because of which I actually stood on top of the world. Without their support, I would have never made it to top of the world. But I also had to make that decision of emotional detachment just so that I could focus on my goal far better than I was doing. So, so do you meditate? A lot of people have asked me that question. And let me tell you that I don't meditate. But for me, when I'm in the mountain, every single step, my mind is completely blank. There is no past. There is no future. Right in that microsecond moment is when I'm living and I'm enjoying. I have no thoughts. I like a lot of people ask me what's going on. Like, you know, do you think about writing a book? Do you think about your father? Do you think about your wife? Do you think about, you know, doing how do you spend all this, you know, downtime on the mountain? I have no thoughts. It, my mind is a blank slate. I just enjoy being in that moment and that's something I can only do on the mountain. And that's what also gives me the mental edge because there are no distractions in my life. I can focus on the goal with razor sharp focus, you know, sharpness that others can't. Mm -hmm. So that's something I've got from the mountains. You also have another amazing mental strength around the way you live as a lifestyle. You are a vegan. My biggest question was that at one end you are risking so much climbing Everest and climbing mountains. And on the other end you are a vegan. I mean, if I was doing it, I would eat everything <laughs> which I could see, right? So why these two extreme things? This combination is extreme. I don't think so. anybody is vegan and uh, an Everest climber at the same time. There is one more who climbed on the very same day that I did. Her name is Paula Leonard and Paula submitted one hour after me. Okay. So, so she awesome. became so yeah. she became the first female vegan in the world mm -hmm. to climb Everest. So there are two of us. So we are not as extreme. <laughs> okay. But, but going back to your point, uh, I became a vegan in late 2002. 
and I purely became a vegan because of an ethical choice. So this is not not some fat diet. It's not like keto or you know paleo or uh, any other diet. This was something else. Back in two thousand two, diets were not a fad. The only diets that were around were Atkins and you know some other shitty diets that were around. Uh, yeah, the GM diet. The GM diet, and you know, so there were not really many diets. Veganism at that point was more of an ethical choice made out of love for animals and our fellow. So you, Peter, you know, Peter was promoting it. Actually, I didn't get to learn about veganism from Peter at all. Uh, I got to learn about veganism from my roommate. who was a ethical vegetarian he said why do you you know eat eggs or why do you drink milk where, where was he from uh, my roommate was from bombay he was a jain actually jainism as a religion has a jeev daya which is also animal rights as a very basic concept in their religion so he exposed me to, to the concept of jeev daya and animal rights and i saw a lot of videos about cruelty in the dairy industry the cruelty in the egg industry and cruelty in the leather industry basically what had happened is that i could not reconcile between my compassionate mindset and my actions as a person who was born in a vegetarian family i was always told that we are vegetarian because we are compassionate towards animals but when i made the connection that a glass of milk is no you know it's almost same as a piece of meat and actually in most cases it's far worse than a piece of meat i could not you know reconcile my compassionate thoughts with my actions and the only way to get peace was to go vegan and to you know start supporting the animal rights movement so i was a vegan for 7 years until i decided to climb mount everest and when i started reading up on everest most of the nutrition literature said that you have to eat meat you have to eat eggs and you have to eat dairy like cheese and beef and these kind of things are absolute must when you climb everest and so i told myself i'm going to try climbing everest as a vegan or i will not climb it at all if i'm not able to climb i will give up and you know i'll be fine i will be happy wow it's okay so so veganism supersedes your dream for everest it absolutely supersedes my dream of everest veganism is something that defines me every article written about me every introduction that i have done about myself says the word vegan and i'm not a vegan who's you know trying to shove his lifestyle down everyone's face i'm just a vegan because i want i'm out there to prove that on a vegan diet anything is possible because the very first thing i heard was that on a vegan diet everything is not possible that you should be you know someone who has a desk job and you should be leading a very sedentary lifestyle and only then this diet is going to be fine for you as soon as i started my journey during the journey i quickly realized that veganism was never a hindrance at all most people think that veganism means uh, healthy food you can easily eat a sev puri a pani puri a bhel puri a coke a pepsi oreo cookies You know, yeah, we know your love of Oreo cookies. You yeah. had that on the way to Everest too, right? I did have. That was my meal before the summit. I ate like about five, six Oreo cookies, and that's all I climbed on. Maybe next time we should just get Oreo to sponsor <laughs> your uh, your entire mountaineering expeditions, right? Who knew Oreo could be one of the best meals best for mountaineers? <laughs> Indeed. So you know, going back to the veganism thing, most people think that eating vegan can be healthy. It's not. but when i started eating healthy vegan food which is you know a lot of vegetables a lot of fruits i started realizing that when i was doing my excruciating workouts i was able to recover faster from my workouts and so i was always wondering you know why do people say that veganism is not you know good enough for a you know for endurance you know events and even on my big mountain climbs i realized that i was just able to stay a vegan and be able to climb the mountains very easily the challenge was of course on the gear side where i had to find the right gear like my boots or my jackets or my gloves because a lot of these used leather and a lot of these used down so i actually had a challenge in in this area 
food was never a challenge at all. Wow. So you actually know where all your gear, which is also vegan. My gear for Everest is eighty-five percent vegan. Uh, there are there is one piece of gear which is called the Himalayan suit, which is a piece of gear that you wear above twenty-three thousand feet, which actually shields your body from minus forty degrees Celsius and high winds. So that one piece Himalayan suit is actually made from down. For two years, you know, I had a lot of back and forth over, you know, buying a down suit and going to climb Everest. I actually wrote to every single gear company that I knew, and I told them that, hey, can you make a synthetic suit for me? And they said that no, we cannot make a synthetic suit because you are the only person in this world requesting one. Wow. So I said okay. Uh, the second thing that I decided to do was I decided that I will buy a down suit, but I will tear it out. And I will fill it with synthetic insulation. I will wear that, and I will climb Everest. But then I thought about it a little bit closely, and I thought that if I die or get injured by doing that, then it's going to bring a very, very bad name to the community. Like last year, there was a vegan lady who was climbing Everest. Her name is Maria Stridom, and she died climbing Everest. And the entire world reported saying that a vegan, vegan tries to climb Everest and dies because of the vegan diet. Yeah. I didn't want that to happen with me. I made this one-time decision that I will buy a down suit, and if I get to the top of the world, I will maybe inspire a lot of people to go vegan or consider vegan. And that way, maybe you know, one animal that was killed for my down suit, I will save thousands of more. In the first thirteen years of my veganism, I don't think I have converted many people to vegan. But since the time I have actually climbed Mount Everest, I think I have converted. Way, way more people to vegan than I could even imagine no, in my dreams. No, no, there's an absolute movement. In fact, Dr. Lee Rodnish and so many scientists Luke talks about moving to a largely plant-based diet. So I think you know there is enough science now, which is also talking about the benefits of you know turning vegan and using healthier fats than animal fat and so on and so forth. But I think the the, the important point you talked about is that today. uh there were a lot of myths around diet and what you can do with it and how you can perform with it but you did not do this for a health reason you did this for an ethical reason more right. than anything else and i think that that's another very interesting paradox here because as you know today you know the one of the biggest reasons for global warming is actually uh the whole consumption of meat and the industry around animals right uh, it's not pollution from vehicles i mean they are all there but the biggest contributor is this right so why are why is you know the whole world or the governments not really looking at veganism in such a much more mainstream way uh so first of all you know there are about i i my numbers may be little off uh, i will have to you know do some research but there are 54 billion animals that are killed every 54 year 54 billion billion to our 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 planet is 7 billion 7 million humans yeah so you can you know you know easily think that you know 54 billion animals are killed every year so that these seven some portion of the 7 billion animals can be fed but imagine the amount of land that is required to raise the 54 billion animals to be killed imagine the amount of gas that these 54 billion animals are producing that is the number one cause of greenhouse gas emissions today on this planet maximum forested land is being converted into farm land so that these animals can be raised majority of grains produced on the planet today soybeans or corn or lot of these things are not being fed to human beings 
but are actually being fed to these animals that are eventually being fed to us. So all this nutrition that we are getting through animals, it would just be smarter to get the nutrition directly from plants. Why eat the nutrition through the animals, through an indirect source? Now coming to your point, why, you know, the governments are not, uh, you know, doing anything about it. I think the meat, the dairy and the egg and the leather, these are gigantic industries with huge lobbies. I think it's going to be a long time before uh, any of this, you know, changes. But I think as you said that, you know, there was a UN report which actually said that going vegetarian or going vegan would actually save the world from, you know, these greenhouse gas emissions that are causing global warming. I think changes are happening slowly and uh, shortly. Interesting. So do you have to have any supplements? Do you take any supplements? I, I do take a su- I do take supplements. And so for the listeners of your show, and if anyone who's considering veganism, I think a piece of advice that I give to everyone who's considering veganism is, as a vegan, you will not get vitamin B12 and vitamin D from your diet. End of story. You can do what you want, but you are not going to get these two two things from your diet. Well, even non-vegans don't have it. Let me tell you, even I have to get a supplement yes. for D3 and B12. Yes. So, uh, but you know, most people attribute uh, these things to vegans. So, here's the thing. When you are eating meat indirectly through, through the animal protein or through the animal uh, muscle, you are getting some B12. Because eventually the B12 and the D3 is all in the muscle. So, if you are eating the animal, you are getting, you know, some D3 and some, you know, B12 from that, uh, from the animal. But not much. And most people don't spend enough time outdoors to, you know, get that vitamin D. So, I personally tell everyone who's considering veganism is to focus on these two supplements to first get yourself tested so that you know what your base levels are and then meet a doctor and get a proper, you know, not a prescription, but get a proper plan as to how you can get your levels to, you know, a proper correct level. So these two supplements are something that I have been taking without fail. Like my vitamin B12 level is something like uh, 880, which is, you know, quite on the... 880. Yeah, which is on the higher side. But as an athlete, you need to maintain a very high level of uh, vitamin B12. And my vitamin D is around 60 or something. It's also a little on the higher side. Mm -hmm. But again, as I said, for an athlete, you need to have a little higher for both these uh, things. Apart from B12 supplementation and D3 supplementation, um, any particular brands you use because there are so many brands right now. So most of the brands in terms of vitamin B12 uh, are vegan because vitamin B12 is a bacteria which is created in a laboratory. In terms of vitamin B12, I take something called Neurokind OD. This is a sub, you know, this is a tablet which you can keep under your tongue and let it dissolve on its own. Gets better absorbed. And this is available in uh, on online. It's or? available anywhere, any normal pharmacy store. The thing is that vitamin D3 is available either in a vegetarian source or a vegan source. The vegetarian source is sourced from a sheep's wool. Anything like a calci roll, which is a, you know, vitamin D3 powder or a vitamin D3 tablet that you buy in the market is all vegetarian. So it's not, not a problem. the gel, there's a round gel which comes. That's, that's what, that's the one which I have. Right. Uh, so you can, you know, just buy those things and you know, vitamin D3 is yeah. great from that. But for vegans, it's a little more challenging to get vitamin D3. There's not many companies making vegan vitamin D3. There's only one company in Bombay called Univet that makes vitamin D3 uh, supplements. And uh, other than that, you have to source it from uh, the US or the UK mm-hmm. if you want vitamin uh, D3 uh, supplements. Mm-hmm. But even if you are a vegan and you are not able to find a vitamin D3 supplement, in the meanwhile, just have the vegetarian supplement. Because it, it does not make sense to go deficient and have a problem, face, you know, issues or, you know, compromise your long-term health. Absolutely. Because then you are actually doing disservice to the animals. 
if you are going to stay healthy you are going to be able to fight for the animals so tell me what's your morning ritual right do you do something over and over again every morning or so nowadays uh, i'm going to say two things right now because i i have an injury in my right knee i have a slightly different morning ritual but every day when i wake like you know when i was training for everest my morning would without fail start at 4 o'clock in the morning i had to plan my day so that i could train i could work i could spend time with my family and i would sleep enough so that i could recover i had to focus on various things in the day so i had to plan my day really well so i would be up without fail by 4 in the morning i would be out in the mountains i would train really hard be back home by about 11 o'clock so which mountain where did you go two hours north of mumbai are the amazing western ghats also called the sayadri mountains hmm. and there are a couple of really straight forward treks that i would you know do during the weekdays also so these are the you know treks that i would go on to one of them is called kalawantin durg and another is called pebe fort near mathiran mm-hmm. so 4 o'clock i would go to climb these mountains uh, i would go to the top and come back down in about an hour 55 minutes and i would be back home because it's easy access through you know railway transportation to get to these places so about 6 hours i would be back home i would shower and i would start my work i would work through till the this is every day this is every day almost every day or almost every other day and then i would work through till the evening and then you know sometime for the family as someone who does excruciating workouts like 2 to 2 and 1/2 hours every day i have to sleep at least 10 hours a day so, so you sleep at like to wake up at 4 you have to sleep like at 6 i have to sleep by 6 or if i sleep a little late 9 o'clock yeah. then i will you know catch up on sleep in the afternoon okay i'll sleep you know 2 oh, hours okay, extra okay that's a So the idea is to sleep at least ten hours a day. It could be you know multiple in the in the afternoon or in the night. And and what is your morning breakfast? Do you have tea? Do you have coffee? What what is your morning drink? I don't drink tea. I don't drink coffee. I drink good old H two O, which is water. I start my day with water, one cup of water. My breakfast most out of of the time is very simple Indian breakfast. It could be poha. It could be upma. A slightly healthier version of these things. You know, like for example, in poha we'll mix sprouts. We'll make some vegetables. We we'll do the same with upma. In in dhokla, we would make it out of you know different flours, and we would maybe you know mix palak in the dhokla. Simple Indian breakfast, but you know with a small you know sort of a healthy spin to it. Lunch and dinners are also again very simple and straightforward. My funda is very straight. Like American Health Association, you know, has this pyramid mm-hmm. in which they say that everyone should be eating five cups of vegetables a day. it's you know great but no one really follows it unfortunately so i actually do follow it i actually do eat five cups of vegetables a day like when i eat my lunch 75% of my thali is filled with vegetables 25% is everything else when they say three cups of fruit i do end up eating three or four cups of fruit a day like without fail i do these things and then they say grains should come later seeds should come later so i do a very moderation of grains and seeds I get all my carbs from beans, actually, so or lentils. Slow, slow carbs, they're slow carbs. Very low carbs, very high in fiber. You know, amazing, like very low in fat. So I'll eat, you know, like for example, rajma. So when I'm eating my vegetables, I'll eat rajma with vegetables. Or some day I will eat a lot of chickpeas. Or some day I will, you know, eat a very big bowl of uh, dal fry with vegetables. So this is where you know I sort of get my carbs, my proteins, my my vitamins, so you my minerals. Have a lot of rice or wheat or. other grains you know all these fancy quinoas and whatever all these things which are people are talking about i am not a big fan of rice but that does not necessarily mean that rice is bad today there is a big fad of you know brown rice and all sorts of different rice but i personally think that even white rice is very much okay 
as long as you are eating you know like in moderation not like a full thali full of white rice so i think white rice is also okay and if you're working out you know and balancing it out and wheat also i eat rotis but very occasionally because as i said you know i my focus is more on getting my maximum calories and nutrition from either fruits and vegetables and everything else comes later on so if i eat and, ro- and what fruits do you eat? Uh, i am more fan of a uh, you know seasonal fruits so right now it's mango season and uh, i don't mind eating like two mangoes in one sitting like two big mangoes in one sitting and that's not a problem because you know i also work out enough in the day that i know that i need yeah, six those. hours every day is is good enough for having two mangoes <laughs> no no six hours also includes my travel okay so that's about two no, but, yeah but still yes so but yeah as i said you know it's all fruits i don't discriminate between vegetables and fruits first of all i am a vegan so my choices are limited and if in those choices i start discriminating then it's not a smart thing to do <laughs> absolutely so i eat every vegetable that grows i eat every fruit that grows i have no you know i don't say that i don't like this fruit or anything i just eat everything but right now it's a season of honeydew and mangoes and and watermelon and you know those fruits so i try and also do some seasonal fruit fruits that never go out of season are apple and banana Mm-hmm. without fail practically 365 days a year outside of when i'm climbing i will end up eating one banana and one apple every day and then the seasonal fruit will be the third fruit what would you not eat which is a vegetable or a fruit or a grain or something i'm in the vegan within the vegan is there something you don't eat no there's everything i will eat as long as the food is vegan i will eat everything but yeah i mean as you mentioned that i'm not like the quinoa or you know the very fancy uh, exotic uh, grains that are you know being imported from Chia mexico chia seeds or, and you know all of that so all the new things that are coming in i'm not like a very big fan of that chia seeds are great but you can might as well eat sabja seeds they may not have exactly the same nutritional value but they actually taste great so when you know what is your take on sugar first of all i think humans this may not i i don't know how scientifically correct this is but i think humans are built to crave carbs and sugar is carbs is pure form of carbs I do think that if you are going to eat a lot of white and a lot of refined sugar you are really not doing any good to your body. That said the sugars that I'm going getting naturally through fruits when I'm eating the whole fruit along with its minerals along with its vitamins along with its fiber I think that is okay. When I'm eating a you know more of a sweet vegetable something like you know an onion which has you know decent amount of sugar in it it's it's really not bad. The the only thing that I do with sugar is I don't eat the white and the refined sugar. I just stick to the natural sugars to get all my sugar and all my carbs intake throughout the day. Yeah, sometimes you know when my mother or my wife are cooking their food, they'll put some sugar in it. But like I I can tell you that I eat one spoon of white sugar a day. I only drink Coke Pepsi when I'm on the mountain because they are great carbs and they are instantly available carbs. But only when you are like going to burn them off right away. That's when you know I would you know have it. When I am at sea level, last four or five years, I don't remember ever having a Coke or Pepsi at home. I I think it's better to stay away from sugar. I don't have a very like you know very stringent viewpoint on that. I think if you are balancing your life really good enough, then maybe one or two spoons of sugar a day is okay. And of course, you don't have ghee, which is the the other superfood which everybody keeps talking about now. I was never a big fan of ghee, anyways. The smell of ghee being made in my home always put me off big time. So when I went vegan. I had a great excuse. Anyone who tried feeding me ghee, I would say I am a vegan. I never wanted to eat ghee, and now I have a great <laughs> excuse for not eating it. But yeah, I, otherwise, otherwise, again, I don't have a really uh, very uh, an opinion on ghee and you know about its uh, nutritional benefits. I would think it is all pure saturated fat, and it's going to go and get stuck on your heart directly and going to clog your arteries big time. So 
I, if I were you, I would stay away from ghee. So apart from you know injuries which you get while mountaineering, etc. Do you ever feel sick? An occasional fever or uh, an occasional bout of loose motion once in three four years is what will happen to me. That's about it. And and how do you cure yourself when you have these things? I try and let those things naturally get you know out of my body. Uh, if it's like going too intense, then uh, I will you know just go to a allopathy doctor and. Uh, I think most of the times they will put me on antibiotics. So you know, I will take those antibiotics and 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 do you have like a expert team? Do you have some doctors or some people who you who you trust when it comes to health and stuff like that? So actually, I come from a family of doctors. My sister is a doctor. My jija ji is a doctor. My my wife's sister is a doctor. Her husband is a doctor. The <laughs> brother is a doctor. Everyone's a doctor in my family. So there's way too many opinions in my family. But yeah, most of the times I look to my sister to you know give me good advice because she's not one of those allopathy doctors who's you know like just stuck you know into it. You know she'll also listen to my side. Like if I will tell her that hey look this is what has happened and I can get through this without maybe antibiotics or something, then she'll you know give me the right advice. Most of the times I will sort of listen to her and I'll just directly call her and get the advice. What is your best purchase, which is let's say worth less than ten thousand rupees? First of all, I don't purchase uh, too many things. Today, I am to a point where I only purchase things that are absolutely beyond necessary. Unless they are absolutely necessary, I will not buy those things. Like I have four pair of T-shirts, I have four pair of jeans. One of the T-shirts was something I bought in two thousand seven, and have been wearing the same T-shirt. I do not buy things that I don't need, but to answer your question, I don't remember what I bought under ten thousand. I okay, I and that that was very important. I think I bought something that was a little higher than ten thousand, slightly higher than ten thousand. A a juicer blender, a smoothie maker. This is because uh, is it one of those bullet ones. The... This it's a it's a little higher end than the bullet ones. The reason I bought it is because uh, every morning I want to put. a good amount of vegetables and fruits in my uh, body and i realized over the period of years that you know when i drink a smoothie you know just works out uh, really well for me that's a very good thing so that's a life hack by the way okay <laughs> that's a life hack so a good way to consume a lot of fruits and vegetables Veg- is to make it to put it into a smoothie so i just mix a lot of like you know i wake up in the morning and, and i'll the fiber also is and and the fiber so that's the best thing about a blender that it does not you know make it it does not juice it i I'm, i don't juice it so and you know i thought that i have to buy something that is going to be very long term so i don't want to buy something that will break in you know one two years and then i have to buy new instead something that will you know stay long term and i did a lot of research before zooming into one product which had a lifetime warranty to its motor so i have a good product which at product home. is this lifetime warranty on on its motor only <laughs> okay <laughs> on its motor only so it's it's a good product uh, it's it's available in in mumbai as well it's a blender called uh, vega blend and the speciality is that it can actually do 30000 rpm wow so like you know you can have a smoothie ready in like 20 seconds wow so it's a little costly but i think it was a worth an investment for my family for my own health One of the things I also decided in, in these few years is that if I am going to make a purchase, I am going to use it. You know, like I'm going to be very diligent and very consistent about it. No, that, that makes a lot of sense, and I think a lot of people, by the way, have so much crap sitting <laughs> in their houses, stuff they have bought which they never end up using, and it almost I say that everything you buy clutters your mind, and the more you can reduce things, 
right declutters your mind itself your Ab- mind space absolutely absolutely so uh, so another thing so in diwali cleaning since last 3 or 4 years we have this you know family thing between me and my wife if we haven't touched this thing for 3 years we just chuck it so it's decluttered out of our house decluttered out of our mind and we also note down what that thing was so that we don't make repeat that mistake in future so give me five five such objects which you threw away um for example i had bought this you know like a few years ago i had bought this psp 3 uh, you know i <laughs> psp is gone oh, nobody uses it no i mean i, I was like a, you know crazy fan of you know uh, like doing on the psp like yeah. playing on the psp and so i had bought that and i had bought an xbox and i had bought a v also so I got all these things and for one month you know i was like crazy about them and then since then they have just been lying and then i also bought like about 20 dvds of games to you know play these things enormous amount of wastage of money and all these things and i'm looking at them I'm like i'm never oh, going to buy it i i need to chuck it too because our <laughs> kids are only now playing on the ipad you know so nobody <laughs> plays games at least the younger generation is no longer <laughs> playing on consoles right so i i'm never going to buy a video game in i mean it's i'm now not going to play it i'm not going to sustain it so it's like these kind of things and when you do diwali cleaning sometimes you think oh no no i will play it so you keep it you keep it you keep it and then your house is getting filled with all these things you don't even have space to keep these things so like the guitar the guitar you know that i was talking about i bought a guitar in 2007 i have never played it once <laughs> the problem is i can't chuck it because it's it's, it's a great functioning guitar but anyways these kind of things so are. so did you chuck it or you didn't chuck it? i i haven't chucked it I haven't checked it because my wife says that she, you know she will learn guitar, so I'm okay. like, okay, I'll keep it okay, for you. Okay, there is a there is a hope. There, there is a hope. <laughs> there is a hope of using that at least. So, what next? I mean, you've already done Everest, right? So, there is nothing higher than Everest, right? So, what are you going to do? So, Everest is of course the highest mountain in the world, but Everest is definitely not the hardest mountain in the world. Oh, so you're going to go hard now? So, so I just want to, you know. Uh, increase the amount of challenge that uh, is there in climbing so k2 is that is that is that in your territory i would love to climb k2 but then k2 is in pakistan occupied kashmir yeah. so even if pakistan issues me visa and permits india will not allow me to go so i don't think i can climb so no indian mountaineer can actually go to k2 not at the moment unless you know i become like a us citizen or a nepali citizen and then you know climb k2 mm. uh, you know i can use some back doors but i'm not so desperate to climb k2 Mm-hmm. Uh, because there are several other good mountains, smaller mountains, bigger mountains. Yeah, but Meru, Meru is also supposed to be tough, right? Meru is a far, far, far tougher mountain even than K2. Possibly to climb something far tougher than K2. Far tougher than K2. And to possibly climb Meru, I would need about eight to ten years of training. Ten years of training with experience. Because if I go and climb Meru without that, I will surely be going on a suicide mission. And I, I'm, I have no interest in going on that. So my right now my focus is you know to add challenges in you know small pieces. Now that I've done Everest, and 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 the reason I'm saying that is if I don't add challenges, I will not grow as a person and I will not learn more things. And as a person, I really want to grow, and as a mountaineer, I want to grow. So the only way is to add challenges and to do different mountains and harder mountains. Now that I'm injured, uh, I have postponed uh, pretty much all my mountain climbing ambitions until next year. until you know where i'm recovered and where i'm you know good to go but the idea is to do something a little harder than everest and possibly in a little better style so have you zeroed on something i was actually supposed to climb makalu this year 
Makalu is the fifth highest mountain in the world and uh, far more challenging than Everest. It's just during the pre-training of Makalu, where I was climbing in the Himalaya, I injured myself. So I have to postpone my Makalu dream for a year. At the moment, I'm not thinking about uh, a year in future. Mm-hmm. And my focus is only on rehabbing my knee and getting ready for a potential uh, big challenge. It could be Makalu or it could be something else. Mm-hmm. That's something I'll figure out on basis of how my training goes. Mm-hmm. So how do you want to be remembered as what? What are you building a legacy? Are you building a story? What are you, I mean, with all these things, what is the, what do you, what do you want yourself to be remembered as? I'm actually really not even thinking about how I want to be remembered. I would rather just lead a very good life, a very fruitful life, a very... You, you could be remembered as a vegan mountaineer, you know, you could be remembered as, you know, somebody who's done, who was part of the, all these tough things. I mean, you know, your whole right, journey... I, Yes, those are great things, but I would rather be remembered as uh, someone who inspired. Someone who inspired people to find their own Everest and climb their own Everest. I don't really care if people go vegan or people climb Everest or anything, but as I just said, if if they listen to me or if they follow my journey, if they follow my life, or if they are connected to me in any way, and even a small spark from me, ignites them and you know helps them on their eventual journey to climb Everest their own personal Everest I would be very very happy I have no big ambitions of changing this world or anything but if I can make impact in few people's lives at that level I would be very happy and and what are your plans around you know what you are planning to do now I know you're speaking at events and you're going to companies right I don't know if you're planning to write a book or what is the what is the plan, you know, to continue as far as your journey is concerned? Uh, with the book, you know, since you specifically, you know, mentioned that uh, a lot of people have asked me whether I'm going to write a book. Uh, here's something I'll tell you. I don't think I've done enough that would merit me writing a book. And, uh, but I think, you know, maybe down the line, once I feel, you know, that there's been, you know, I've climbed a few more mountains and I have a few more stories. And well, I all I can tell you is listening to all the stories, you have material for three books, not okay. one. Yeah, I maybe someday. I, I, you know, one of the guys, uh, I, I was giving a talk in Bangalore and this guy, you know, came up to me and said, you should write a book. And I said, I don't want to. And he said, look, if you're going to climb Makalu next, there is a good chance that you will not come back. Might as well write a book now. <laughs> so that at least people will have your journey, you know. <laughs> You know, documented somewhere. I'm like, okay, that's a good way of saying. But uh, yeah, someday. I, I I hope that I have, I, I don't think I have enough stories and learnings to share with the world. I hope to have that in future. But right now, I... I mean, I, all I can tell you is that in this, you know, in this talk, the amount of learnings which I have got and, you know, all the audience are going to get is, is amazing, right? I mean, this is material clearly for... Uh, a book and of course uh, you should take the choice but I would I would definitely encourage you to put this together the issue with book is that the book is a full time project and it's like an Everest of its own and right now I'm not ready to take on that Everest no, and that, I that's think, fair it, yeah these things take a lot of time and a lot of energy and uh, it, it, it is it is challenging for sure but yeah other than other than this I mean I'm not do I'm, I'm like last year I did do a lot of talks like I did almost 85 talks after I climbed Everest and at some point in my life, I really thought I wanted to be a motivational or an inspirational speaker. After actually doing so many thoughts, I think I don't want to be one. You know, I'm just happy going and telling my story. If people 
are inspired great otherwise you know i'm not like really hellbent on becoming one i think uh, i i think i'm very clear i want to be a good mountain climber you know i come from a technology background so i'm happy you know working on technology projects so those are the two things you know that are going to drive my life along with my family life so if you wanted you know help from the universe you know and let's hope that the universe is listening to this show what help do you need one of the things that again uh, in in last few months i've been seeing that there is this mad rush amongst indians to go and climb everest and so something that i've been toying with is i went through a very very long journey of climbing everest i really didn't have a mentor through you know during this journey you know i have always struggled to you know find the right mentors i find i found mentors for several small small things but i never found a mentor who could guide me through the overall journey uh and with so many people wanting to climb everest i have toyed with the idea that i would really like to mentor these people i mean mentor these people not just to climb everest but possibly even become good mountain climbers or just become good human beings uh maybe some help you know to actually make that happen amazing i think when when the universe has asked you what do you want your answer is that how can i help the universe i think that's really what it is and i think that's what makes uh, you such an amazing person kuntal it was an absolute pleasure talking to you i think we're going to call you again for a show because i think you know there are so many stories and so many ideas coming out of you and your journey it's been absolutely inspirational we've been able to go a little bit beneath the force yes a uh, little bit beneath the force but i think a lot more has to come uh so thanks a lot once again and uh, to all the people out here we would love your feedback is there any other questions you want want us to ask kuntal you know we can always contact him on twitter facebook and uh, we'll be putting out his handle at the end of the podcast but what's more important is the life lessons the tactics some of the key learnings we got from kuntal i think uh, absolutely inspirational i have it has been a pleasure kuntal thanks a lot Thank you so much. Really enjoyed having this conversation. I am really glad to be on the show. Excuse me, bhaiya. Excuse me. Bole, madam. Menu me kya hai? Menu me seen and seen hai. Podcast hai, on course hai, Cyrus hai, hai, Made in India, Rediscovery Project, Empowering Series, Sex Wax hai, IBM Likes hai, Simplified hai, Keeping It Queer hai, Things and Destinations hai, My Neighbor Zuckerberg hai, or the Fan Garage hai. Aapko kya chahiye? एक बार रिपीट कर देंगे क्या रिपीट रिपीट नहीं करता हम आप जाओ आई वी एम पॉडकास्ट डॉट कॉम पे और सुनो ये सब या फिर डाउनलोड करो उनका ऐप सब आपकी उंगलियों पे